struggles of rebuilding. Let's start by reading the text. Nehemiah chapter 5, verse 1. Now there was a great outcry of the people and their wives against their Jewish brothers. For there are those who said, We, he cut me down a little bit, we, our sons and our daughters, are many. Therefore, let us get grain that we may eat and live. Verse 3. There are others who said, We are mortgaging our fields, our vineyards, and our houses that we might get grain because of the famine. Also, there were those who said, We have borrowed money for the king's tax on our fields and our vineyards. Now our flesh is like the flesh of our brothers. Our children like their children. Yet behold, we are forcing our sons and our daughters to be slaves. And some of our daughters are forced into bondage already. And we are helpless because our fields and vineyards belong to others. Then I was very angry when I had heard their outcry and these words. I consulted with myself and contended with the nobles and the rulers and said to them, You are exacting usury, each from his brother. Therefore, I held a great assembly against them. I said to them, We, according to our ability, have redeemed our Jewish brothers who were sold to the nations. Now would you even sell your brothers that they may be sold to us? Then they were silent and could not find a word to say. Again I said, the thing which you are doing is not good. Should you not walk in the fear of our God because of the reproach of the nations, our enemies? And likewise, I, my brothers, and my servants are lending them money and grain. Please, leave us off this usury. Please, give back to them this very day the, their fields, their vineyards, their olive groves, and their houses. Also the hundredth part of the money and of the grain, the new wine and the oil that you are exacting from them. Then they said, we will give it back. We will require nothing from them. We will do exactly as you say. So I called the priest and they took an oath from them that they would do according to this promise. I also shook out the front of my garment and said, Thus may God shake out every man from his house and from his possessions who does not fulfill this promise. Even thus may he be shaken out and empty. And all the assembly said, Amen. And they praised the Lord. Then the people did according to this promise. Moreover, from that day I was appointed to be their governor in the land of Judah from the 20th year to the 32nd year of King Artaxerxes. Twelve years, neither I nor my kinsmen have eaten the governor's food allowance. But the former governors who were before me laid burdens on the people and took from them bread and wine besides forty shekels of silver. Even their servants domineered the people, but I, not do, but I did not do so because of the fear of God. I also applied myself to the work on this wall. We did not buy any land, and all my servants were gathered there for the work. Moreover, there are at my table 150 Jews and officials, besides those who came to us from the nations that were around us. Now that which was prepared each day was one ox and six choice sheep, 
Also birds were prepared for me. And once in ten days, all sorts of wine were furnished in abundance. Yet for all this, I did not demand the governor's food allowance because the servitude was heavy on this people. Remember me, O oh my God, for good, according to all I have done for this people. Heavenly Father, continue to speak to us this morning through your written word. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Long 19 verses there, but it sets another scene up. It's interesting we come to this chapter that you kind of realize the rebuilding of the wall was almost wrecked by dissensions and strife of the people. The inequality and injustice that transpired during the building of the wall developed over a period of time. The building of the wall and the external opposition put a strain on the economic substructure of the community. Now the culmination of all these things have occurred shortly before the wall was finished, which would be around August and September. This would be near the end of harvest, where creditors would require payment of capital and interest on loans. And remember back in chapter 4, verse 22, Nehemiah had asked the workers to stay in Jerusalem, at least one guy and his servant. Well, that could have affected a shortage of workers at the harvest, which in turn would affect the income of some of the larger families. Now, added to this, it speaks of a famine going on. Taxation was made the situation extremely difficult. We read in the text that some of them had to borrow money just to pay the taxes. Now, if that wasn't bad enough, we read about a problem that was being caused by a few self-indulgent nobles and rulers or officials that had a standard of living. Shows us again that selfishness and greed will destroy the most commendable project. People who were once united when they were oppressed by external threat are now threatened by eternal struggles and conflicts and problems. They came together when they had external threat upon them, but now they're threatened from within. See, if you want a work of God to be ruined, let misunderstanding, discouragement, and mistrust arise. If you go back to any church split here in the United States, the majority of them, some of them, majority of them, are not doctrinal at all. It's usually a misunderstanding, a discouragement, or a mistrust. And once that happens, things begin to fall apart. And this chapter tells us how Nehemiah resolved this inward struggle that was going on. First, we look at the extortion by the rich, verses 1 through 5. And it's interesting in verse 1, it talks about a great outcry of the people and their wives. That word outcry in Hebrew describes the complaint that the Israelites had back in Egypt. You read in Exodus chapter 3, verse 9, Now behold, the cry of the sons of Israel has come to me. Furthermore, I see the oppression with which the Egyptians are oppressing them. The same word, that same cry out. So they're, they're crying out loudly just as much as they did when they were back in Egypt. Now, this is pointing to one of the most dangerous evils that inherit inherent to the human race since the fall. And I'm talking about exploitation. Now, exploitation in our day takes many forms and many shapes. 
But let me tell you about one. Human trafficking. We heard about some of this at Promise Keepers yesterday. There's an estimated 40.3 million people around the world that are caught up in human trafficking. 24.9 million of them are exploited for labor. 15.4 million of them are in forced marriage. So globally, it's 5.4. Let's round it down to about 5. According to the stats, for, for every 1,000 people on the planet, 5 of them are in human trafficking. Now, the United States Department, State Department, excuse me, and the Department of Justice estimates there's 14,500 to 17,500 people trafficked into the United States every year. Within our own borders, that number even goes up to highest 25, 30, 35,000, depending on who you read. And here's the thing. You ready for this? According to the State Department and the United States Department of Justice, 200,000 American children are at risk of being trafficking into the sex industry. That's happening right here in our own backyard. So we can say the great outcry throughout our world in our time is justice. We need to be praying and asking God, what can we do about this problem of exploitation, specifically human trafficking? I think one thing we need to do is read up on it more. I just barely scratched the surface. It's, well, for lack of a better word, disgusting about some of the stuff you read about. Well, there's exploitation going on here. Keep that in mind. Go back to the text. We read that the complaint is not about Nehemiah, but look what it says. They're Jewish brothers. Some translations were ruling that countrymen, but the actual word is brothers. This, this term Jews can be used in a general sense, but can also be used to single out a, self, a uh, select group, as in this case, a privileged branch or level of population, the more affluent who have come back to Jerusalem. People making complaints say, we are sons and daughters are many, let us get grain that we may eat. The economic crisis was hard on large families. During the months they were working on the wall, as we talked about earlier, they could not produce enough grain. They had to buy it even though they were poor, and there was their own countrymen that was selling it to them. Keep that in mind. This reminds us, dearly beloved, we cannot ignore the needs of the people. We can't just put our heads in the sand. We have a benevolence committee here at church. Our first goal is look around among us to see anyone needs any help. We need to be in communication with each other when someone has a problem or needs some help. Even when we're involved in a special project. And it's interesting to me, you might want to write this down, Malachi chapter 3, verses 5 through 15, almost a same situation going on in Malachi 3, verse 5 and following. He's talking to them, God's talking to them how they're oppressing the wage earner. He goes on to talk about how they're even robbing himself, but that's a whole other story in itself. Look what they next say. We are merging our fields, our vineyards, and houses in verse 3. In order to, to buy grain, they had to take loans out, mortgage their property. 
Some of them had to borrow money to pay taxes. You see that in verse 4. Now, Babylonians had started this practice. The Persians continued to do so. In fact, King Darius, get this, King Darius had instituted a tax on the past harvest plus the present yields. You had to pay it twice. Now, Artaxerxes, taxation was heavy throughout the Persian Empire. Many landowners fell into the hands of loan sharks. And of course, these loan sharks made enormous profits. Similar to what you see, these payday loans. You know, you go to some places around, you see these payday loans. You know how much interest some of those people charge? As high as 45 to 50% taking advantage of people in need. At times, a family was forced to debt slavery. We see that in verse 5. We are forcing our sons and daughters to be slaves. Now, this practice was common in the ancient Near East. In the laws of the Pentateuch, it was controlled but not prohibited. And you can read about that in Exodus chapter 21, verses 1 through 11. The son or daughter had to work off the debt until it was paid. Now, in many cases, the daughter was taken for a wife by the creditor or one of his sons. In Leviticus chapter 25, verses 39 and following, it talks about a sabbatical year which required debt slaves to be released in the seventh year. Now, I just said, just bear in mind what's going on here. Now, one of the results, one of the punishments, if you will, of disobedience to God was their sons and daughters were given to another nation. You read about this in Deuteronomy chapter 28, verse 32. Your sons and your daughters shall be given to another people while your eyes look on and yearn for them continually, but there will be nothing you can do. So as a punishment for disobedience to him, he'll allow his they'll allow their sons and daughters to be taken off by another nation. But in this case, it's not another nation, is it? It's their own countrymen, their own brothers who are doing this to them. There was a corrupter spirit in chapter 3, but apparently that didn't characterize everybody, especially as the work on the wall continued. There will always be ready someone there to, be, uh, to, to take advantage and capitalize on someone's misfortunes. This is why Nehemiah was so disturbed and why we should be concerned a bad injustice within the Christian community. Sometimes we can be insensitive to the needs of others. For example, material or educational who are fellow members of the same community. We are a local body here at Forestburg Baptist Church. We are to take care of each other. May I remind you again, James, the book of James tells us that the pure and undefiled religion is this, the taking care of widows and orphans. I would tell you today, perhaps, no, I won't say perhaps, I know in my heart that if churches were doing that and taking care of that, it would be a lot better than a welfare system we have in place today. We are to take care of each other. Look out for each other. And don't take advantage of the situation. That's what they were doing to each other. Can you imagine that? So Nehemiah rebukes the creditors in verses 6 through 11. Look what he says in verse 6. He was very angry because their behavior, their ethics were wrong. He realized the danger of slipping into 
inequality and the upsetting of the economic infrastructure. And of course, the harmony of the workers was starting to break down. Their action had to be taken before it ruined the whole thing. Think about this. You were threatened by enemies on all four sides right about last week. And the work continued. Now, this inward struggle is about to stop everything in the tracks if Nehemiah did not step in and take care of it. Look what he says in verse 7. He consulted with himself and contended with the nobles and rulers. It takes courage to oppose the influential members of a community. He needed these people to help. They're important people. But he had to consider it very carefully before acting. He was facing a conflict, a struggle between social classes. And he solved it on the basis of principles taught in the Pentateuch. Leviticus chapter 26, verse 12. It envisions a people, not an individual. In fact, it says, God says, I will walk among you and be your God and you shall be my people. It doesn't say be my person, be my people. You realize there's going to be more than just you in heaven. I hope you realize that. And there be there might be some people up there you might be might uh, be surprised by seeing them there, but let's not forget there might be people just equally surprised to see you there. Deuteronomy refers to fellow Israelites as brothers, regardless of social status, tribal divisions, included kings and priests. And we have to remind ourselves here that all the social divisions that the society tries to place on us. Does not mean anything in this place. We all have equal footing at the cross. I told you this before. I don't have any more access to God than you do. I have more accountability because of the position which God allowed me to have. But you can go to God just as much as I can. There's only one mediator between God and man, and that's the man Christ Jesus. The relationship of a unified people bound to God by a covenant meant that. Relations between Jews should never be treated as business transactions. Rather, as spiritual service and pleasing to God, blessed by Him. You can say this is also the case in the church when you look at 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 1-11. through Paul's asking, why are you taking each other to court? Why would you take a fellow brother or sister in Christ to court to let a bunch of pagans tell you what to do? That's not right. In fact... There is even a, a, a verse in there about taking an oath. Our word should be our word. Let our yes be yes and our no be no. In other words, when you step into court, they shouldn't even have to tell you to take an oath because they know you're a person of your word. Like back not too long ago in this country, you would, I'd go to Larry and buy some land. I said, I agree on this price. We shake hands. Our word is our bond. There was no need for a written contract. We understood each other. Look what he says in verse 7. Here's the charge. Exacting usury. Now it comes from a verb and a noun of the same root. Now that meaning varies with context, and even then it's disputed. It could refer to making loans, as in verse 10. It could refer to making loans with interest or making loans against a pledge, like collateral. The loans worth interest was a practice forbidding profiting from one's misfortune. 
Taking pledges, taking pledges to assure payment was allowed, but regulated in Deuteronomy chapter 24. For example, you couldn't take a millstone as collateral. A millstone was a heavy stone that they rolled to make grain and also crushed olives. You couldn't do that because that was necessary for a family's daily bread. You couldn't enter a borrower's house to seize anything as a pledge. You couldn't take a cloak because then you'd be depriving one of protection from the cold. So there was regulations for it. And the principle of these rules was generosity and kindness towards those in need. Contrary to the practice of seizing persons or property if one failed to repay. Let me back up make sure you're all on the same page. This was a unique circumstance. They were back in Jerusalem trying to build the wall. They're getting it done. And now because of that going on, the, the strain it had put on economics because people had to stay in the city, not enough people could work in the harvest. Some people were still hungry, could not produce enough grain, they need more grain. Instead of helping each other out, oh, I'll loan you the money. Or I'll take your son or your daughter as a pledge and they can work for me, they pay the, the, the debt off. You see the problem here. You see that. He says in verse 8, we have redeemed our Jewish brothers who were sold to the nations. Apparently they had made a special effort to redeem their fellow Jews who had been sold into debt slavery to the surrounding people. And Nehemiah was now enraged that now the rich Jewish landowners not only causing them to go back into debt slavery, but also selling the slave to other nations. This, this infuriated Nehemiah. He says in verse 9, the thing which you are doing is not good. It's not right. He confronted them with the truth. And that was, he told them you should walk in the fear of our God, which is a concept from Old Testament wisdom literature. That means to love and awe and of and devotion to God with kindness and integrity toward men. Such a lifestyle like that would be a witness to the Gentiles. To walk in fear of our God. That, beloved, is probably one of our biggest problems here in the United States. No one has a fear of God anymore. There is a picture I saw on social media. It said, we are drowning in information while we're starving for wisdom. You can find information out the wazoo. I mean, the internet is great. You don't even go in there and find almost anything you want. Psalm 111, verse 10. You want wisdom? The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. A good understanding have all those who do His commandments. His praise endures forever. We're lacking and starving for wisdom because as a country, we do not fear God. We do it our way. And that's what Nehemiah is pointing out to the nobles and the officials. He tells them in verse 10 that him and his brothers and servants are lending the people money and grain. Perhaps he wasn't charging interest. He may be taking loans against a pledge, but he was doing it according to law. And that reminds us, sometimes we help people out by lending, but sometimes we just have to give unselfishly. Help somebody out in a time of need. Don't worry about paying it back as a gift. Well, 
They wanted the nobles and officials to waive the interest and give everything back in verse 11, plus everything they charged against the property. It was killing the well-being of the community as a whole. They have to sacrifice just as much as the poor people were. Proverbs chapter 22, verse 16. He who oppresses the poor to make more for himself or who gives to the rich will only come to poverty. Verses 12 through 13, they accept the exhortation. They promise to pay back everything, everything back and all the, all the interest. Nehemiah, knowing that such a promise under emotional stress may not all be kept, so what did he do? He called the priest to make him take an oath. So they would do what they promised. Not only that, he shakes out his garment in verse 13. That's a symbolic act to say, if you don't keep this promise, the stuff is falling out of my, out of my cloak here. May you be robbed of everything. May God take all your possessions away from you if you do not keep what you said you will do. And then in verses 14 through 19, we see Nehemiah's unselfish leadership, a great example. Now, apparently he had been appointed governor at some point. It's not mentioned anywhere in the text before chapter 5. And under Persian policy, he had a right as governor to receive taxes to support his own household for his servants, diplomatic expenses. But Nehemiah did not use his prerogative. There have been governors there before him since they've been returned to Judah. Their assistants or subordinates or servants used their position to enhance their own power. They domineered, oppressed, or lowered over the people. However, Nehemiah and his men were directed on the work to be done instead of looking to their own personal agenda. He talks about at his table 150 Jews and officials, those who came to us from nations that are around us. He supported the officials and employees of the government, also the Jews who migrated to Judah. He entertained visitors from other parts of the Persian Empire as well as other officials from other regions. And look at verse 18. He says, I did not demand the governor's food allowance. Now, the amount of, the amount of food you see listed is quite a bit. Well, you want to see a lot of food? Turn to 1 Kings chapter 4, verse 22, and look what King Solomon got for a day. Usually a person of the political power used that position to increase his wealth, but this was not the case from Nehemiah. His motives? The fear of God and compassion for the people. He knew God's concern for justice, compassion, and equality. And here's the thing. If you say you love God and you fear God, your decisions and what you do will determine how far or how deep or the depth of your reverence you have for God. You say you love God and fear God, but yet your actions don't back it up. Then you don't really truly fear God or love God. He underwrote government expenses from his own personal savings. He sacrificed the taxes he was entitled to. It reminds me of 1 John chapter 3, verse 17. Whoever has the world's goods and sees his brother in need and closes his heart against him, how does the love of God abide in him? If you have a need and I can help with that need and I don't do anything about it, then how does the love of God abide in me? You see a model for conflict resolution here within the text. I won't go through that right now. But as you look at this as a whole, this chapter, 
just as a side note, it's interesting to me that this chapter is included because it doesn't paint a pretty picture. I mean, look at chapter 4. What a raw, raw chapter that was. Man, they were turning by enemies. They kept moving. They didn't quit. They kept pressing on. And now they're turning on each other. If I was an editor, I may edit that out of the book, but it's in there. It just goes to prove that God's word is true. Without error, I believe it's God's word anyway. Without that, but it just shows us that they included sin here to tell us, gave us a real picture of what happened. He knew he had to take definite action. He knew to exert courageous leadership. He knew all those things, but he was always dependent upon God. The problems and struggles he faced were serious and delicate. Greed and inequality and justice. He, rea he reacted carefully, yet swiftly and decisively. He trusted in God and in the guidance of His Word. He confronted the offender privately and made the matter clear. He called an assembly. Public issues must be dealt with in public, yet he exhibited a humble attitude throughout. Nehemiah is an example of generosity, set an example of unselfish service. Your actions always speak louder than your words. So if you can hear nothing else I said today, hear this. How we treat each other, what we say to each other, speaks volumes to an unbelieving world and how we really feel. This is the case in chapter 5. They're doing so well, but yet some people want to take advantage and almost call the whole thing off. We must be careful in the days ahead. As we continue to move forward, there will be temptation. Satan will do everything he possibly can to break us up. Cause us to not trust each other. Misunderstandings. It's important that we deal with those things in a biblical way. You have a problem with somebody, you go talk to them. Tell them what's going on. Sometimes, someone might have done something, didn't mean to do it that way, you took it the wrong way, they don't know you're mad at them. If you still have a problem, you take a brother with you. If that doesn't work, you take him before the church. But hear me well, the whole point of this is reconciliation to each other, which is the whole point of gospel, reconciliation of man to God. It calls us to forgive each other and to move on. It's a sorry thing to see happening in a, a lot of churches here in the States that we expect God to forgive us on the dime, but we have a hard time forgiving each other. People are watching us. Look at them. They said they're living by faith, known by love. Do our actions back that up? I would say as of right now, yes, to some degree it does. There's good things happening. But as your pastor, I want to warn you. We can't take anything for granted. We've got to stay alert. We cannot quit. We've got to be careful of being devoured from the inside out. You know, of course, 
way back, they said they would take America not by outward force, but from the inside out and seize what they're trying to do. John chapter 13, verse 34 and 35, Jesus speaking, A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another, even as I have loved you, that you also love one another. By, by this, all men will know you, my disciples, that you have love for one another. But see, it's not just love as defined by the world or defined by stuff we see on TV. It's defined by how Jesus loves you. The best thing I can tell you to describe that or attempt to describe the love of Jesus that does it justice is to take a look at the cross. I'll run out of vocabulary trying to describe to you how great and how big, how deep, how wide is Christ's love for you. We cannot let the enemy destroy what we're working so hard to accomplish. And the way we can accomplish it is by dependence upon God. Take a look in that chapter. Read it again. This was not some foreign nation trying to extort them. This was their own people within them. They should know better. And yet they were extorting their own brothers at a time of need. That would be like one of you coming up to me after service says, Tim, I need something for lunch. I don't have groceries. Well, here, I'll lend you some money, but I'm going to charge you 12% interest. What sense does that make? What's that really happening in the text? And Nehemiah shows us a good example of what to do in that situation. He couldn't put his head in the sand. He had it once again. He had to address the issue. Did you catch? I'm going to say this in closing. Did you catch that verse after they come and he he confronts them and they say yes, we're going to get everything back plus interest and they did all that and they did they promised what they're going to do. They did it and what did you catch that one little sentence? And they praise the Lord. Did you catch that? And they praise it. Kind of interesting. If they get called on something, they realize, hey, we're wrong. All right, take it back. I'm not mad. I was wrong. Let's praise the Lord together. So next time someone asks you for forgiveness and you forgive them, look at them and say, hey, let's praise the Lord. Don't look at me like that. <laughs> I wonder what someone's action would be. Hey, let's praise the Lord. <laughs> Excuse me? My question to you this morning is, first of all, do you have a relationship with Jesus Christ? Have you given your life to Him? He paid it on the cross for all of us, once and for all. He loves you. And I cannot adequately describe the depth of His love because it's so deep and so wide, it's beyond my comprehension. If you've done that, are you living for Him? See, here's the thing, dear beloved. If we can't treat each other like we should, then how in the world are we going to witness to a lost and dying world? we got to do it better than what the world does. You can go anywhere and get walked on and talked about and gossiped about, and you take your pick, go out in the world and find a place that you're going to find it everywhere. But this is our sanctuary. It's a place to be safe, a 
place where you're loved unconditionally. And loving unconditionally does mean by default that, hey, we need to correct each other when we're doing something wrong. Because if you truly love somebody, you're not going to let them go off and do something that's going to harm them, especially for all eternity. You think I'll let my girls just climb all over the stove and burn themselves? What kind of dad would I be? No, I'd get them off. God loves you too much. I said this before. God has put obstacle after obstacle after obstacle to keep you from going to hell. He doesn't send you there. He's done everything He can. He keeps putting those obstacles up. Sending people your way. He sent His Son. He loves you so much. But it still has to be your decision. And as we move forward in this politically charged atmosphere that we're all living in, how are we going to treat each other? How are we going to express ourselves? How are we going to talk to one another? Because I dearly believe in, in the bottom of my heart, as the community of Forestburg continues, listen to me, continues to see us living by faith and loving one another and loving on them, more and more people come this way and say, what is going on in there? It's true. It's genuine. I see it. A bunch of kids going to camp right now. I don't know how many of them there are. Like 20 something? Those kids, 24? Those kids are going to camp. They come basically on Wednesday nights. I don't know if all of them go to church somewhere else. But they keep coming back here. You know why? Because they've been shown the love of Christ through so many of you by what you do and what you say. They keep coming. And now the parents are going, what's going on? My, my kid tells me all this wonderful stuff. Some of their parents know me before I know them. Oh, you must be TT. Yeah, that's me. I've heard so much about you. Well, that's great. I want to encourage you. Don't quit. Keep moving forward. Always be sensitive to each other and how we treat one another. We do not want to see demolish what we're working so hard and what we're working towards. Do you see it happening? Do you see the kingdom of God being furthered here in this church? I do, little by little. We have to keep moving forward. We have to be careful what we do. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this day. Thank you for your word. Father, I thank you for my brothers and sisters gathered here this morning. Father, may we love each other the way you love us. May we see each other the way you see us. Father, as we continue to move forward, protect us. Put a hedge of protection around us, dear God. Protect us from the enemy's attacks. Help us to keep moving forward as one body. And Father, I pray for anyone in this room that has never given their life to Christ, this would be the time. Or if we have anything against each other in this room, or we have to wait till we go home, Father, we need to take care of that immediately. They're our brother and sister in Christ. What bonds us together 
is more powerful than anything this world has, and that's the blood of your Son. May we never forget that. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Would you stand with me, please? Mm -hmm.